This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This week, Joe Biden confirmed he will send more advanced rocket systems to Kyiv as Ukrainian forces face strong attacks from the Russians in the Donbass region in the east. To get a sense of the current state of the war and the broader plan for U.S. support to Ukraine, I spoke to a foreign policy expert to get her thoughts. In years to come, when we look back at Biden's response to international crises, how will he be judged? I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland, and this is Politics Weekly America. Well, uh, you know, it's quite a, I guess it's a sad badge of honor. Uh, it certainly was a surprise to me. I was the Susan Washington Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a global affairs analyst for CNN, who co-authored the book Kremlin Rising, which looked at how Russia changed the moment Vladimir Putin gained power. So we certainly sort of had a pretty clear-eyed view of what was happening inside of Russia from the very beginning of Putin's tenure. But of course, She recently found herself in a rather bizarre situation. Her name appeared on a list of 963 Americans who were given lifetime bans from entering Russia. So I I was absolutely stunned the other day to see this. I think it's it it was reminiscent to me almost of of the Soviet days. And, you know, the, the leadership ordered up a list. And so essentially a random collection of names there. There's dead senators on that list. There's. Uh, you know, random American celebrities. There's some journalists. So, you know, again, it's, I suppose, a badge of honor, but it it makes me very sad as well. Sad not to be able to go to Russia. Uh, I certainly believe there are, you know, many wonderful Russian people. And, you know, it's a place that meant a lot to me and that I'd like to go back to someday when it is free and not at war with its neighbors. And the people who appeared on the list were mainly government officials. As you mentioned, some of them were probably not going to be traveling to Russia anytime soon because they had already died, such as the late Senator John McCain. But the Kremlin defended the list because they said it was in response to so-called hostile U.S. actions. So can you bring us up to date? First off, where are we in the war itself now that it has been more than three months since the start of Russia's invasion? Yeah, well, that's an important question uh, to look at what the situation on the ground actually is. And there is a significant amount, I would say, of fog of war. It's a very brutal battle in the east of Ukraine that is unfolding right now. So that makes it very hazardous for journalists to cover from the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians are finding it hard to stop the Russian troops here as they use their scorched earth tactics to snatch territory in the Donbass. 
And we have basically no visibility, no uh, independent journalists embedded on the Russian side of the war. So I, you know, caveat this, but it does appear that Russia having regrouped is now making significant territorial gains in Eastern Ukraine and is is making steady but but genuine incremental progress there to essentially create the uh, sort of fake reality of these rump states uh, of Luhansk and Donetsk that they created at the beginning of the war. You could imagine them moving from these military gains toward a political process where they seek to create uh, new artificial statelets that they would uh, you know recognize in the eastern Ukraine. And that's our kind of recipe for a long-term war settling in. And when the invasion started, it seemed like most experts feared the worst for Ukraine. And some of them said that the capital of Kyiv would soon fall into Russian control. So with that context in mind, how has Ukraine somewhat defied some of the predictions that were made three months ago? Yeah, I, I think that there's no question that the Russia's failure in the initial stage of the war was uh, quite notable and shocking. You know, remember they had assembled an enormous, what appeared to be invasion force of over 150,000 of its military on the borders of Ukraine. But it seems that their actual plan was a, a speedy decapitation strike, as they call it. That failed initially and was, I think, a surprise to everyone. Whereas the broader invasion of Ukraine Uh, just didn't seem to be fully resourced, fully thought through, poorly executed, poorly commanded. And, you know, it was a really disastrous performance by Russia in the initial stage. They have now regrouped and re-resourced the fight in the East and focused on that. But I think it's important for people to understand that they haven't necessarily abandoned the goal that Putin started out with in this war, which is not just to take the eastern part of Ukraine, but essentially to take over and to deny Ukraine its legitimacy as an independent state. This is a much more existentially framed war than many realize, not just uh, to cut off a little piece here and there of Ukraine, but essentially to undermine the stability and independence of Ukraine as a country. We've seen major developments in the past um, a few weeks for sure, and there's definitely more still to come in the war in Ukraine. And this week, we got a pretty big decision from President Biden. He said the U.S. would supply Ukraine with medium-range, high-mobility artillery rockets, although he stopped short of supplying the long-range missiles that could actually hit Russia. So, Susan, what's the thinking behind this decision? Yeah, this is very significant, and it should be said that It's literally inconceivable three months ago that the United States would be talking about sending this kind of weapon to Ukraine. And Ukraine's success initially on the battlefield has really uh, brought them a whole different level of support and engagement by the United States and the Western allies. It really is a remarkable 
shift in a very short period of time. $40 billion U.S. dollars was the most recent aid package that was approved in the U.S. Congress for Ukraine. Not all of that is military, of course, but it, it just really represents an enormous escalation in the American commitment to the war. And I think that is a recognition of the bravery and uh, the enormity of the conflict that is unfolding right now. These weapons can hit inside Russia. I see that misreported in some ways. What's fascinating is that the U.S. supplied them anyways while asking for a commitment, I'm told, by the Ukrainians not to fire them into Russia. It's not that they're not capable of doing so. It's that they were supplied on the condition that they not do so. You know, the real reality is we are in a very short period of time, essentially in a situation where the United States and Britain and others are now engaged in a proxy war supplying an enormous amount of uh, firepower and weaponry to a, a country engaged in a battle against a hostile superpower. This is not radically different from some of the conflicts of the Cold War period. And I think Russia, I think, has not kind of figured out its response either. So Biden's latest pledge is, of course, part of a wider package providing helicopters, javelin, anti-tank weapon systems, tactical vehicles, and more military aid to Ukraine. Russia says the U.S. shouldn't have chosen to send the mid-range missiles that they have now committed. So what do you make of this compromise that Biden has made? Do you think it demonstrates the fine line that he is trying to walk as the U.S. is providing aid to Ukraine? Well, it is it is fascinating, right? At each step along the way, essentially the U.S. has gone farther and farther and farther, but always in a negotiation, right? You know, always not enough for the Ukrainians, always uh, not enough or too much for certain allies, and and I think we're going to just see that process continue to unfold. But it does it does remind me a little bit, uh, you know, look back at sort of the history, say, of the United States and Israel in its various conflicts, you know, over the decades, right? a similar dynamic. But if you step back, the big picture is that the United States has been at key moments in its history, obviously a a security guarantor of Israel. And I think that's where we're moving towards here with Ukraine. Uh, The U.S. in a big picture sense is now a really all in on Ukraine in a way that was not the case. You wouldn't have said that a year ago or six months ago. And the latest U.S. deal is the 11th Ukraine aid package approved so far. Congress has already okayed aid packages worth billions of dollars for Ukraine over the past three months. This is actually a rare bipartisan issue for Congress. So can you tell us why is the U.S. willing to spend so much money to help Ukraine in this fight? Yeah, I think you're right to to spotlight this as a rare, very rare uh, moment of bipartisanship. What's interesting as, as a sort of longtime observer of the politics of foreign policy here in Washington, though, is that it's kind of a misleading form of bipartisanship. There's very different rationales behind the support for Ukraine within the Republican and the Democratic caucus. They're not coming at it from the same point of view. And, you know, so that in a sense makes it potentially a very short-lived form of consensus. And you do have this growing, yeah, pro-Putin isolation, neo-isolationist part of the Republican Party, Rand Paul, uh, no longer just a a caucus of one, but uh, senators like 
Josh Hawley from Missouri and other very staunch Trump supporters. Trump himself, interestingly, came out against the most recent aid package, the $40 billion. And so I think you see that fissure within the Republican Party growing. And the question will be to what extent and when does it actually cut in in a bigger way to what so far has been very strong overall support from Republicans in Congress. And lending money and weapons to Ukraine has not been the only thing the U.S. has done. Heavy sanctions have also been imposed against Russia. So what kind of sanctions have we seen the U.S. enact so far and how have they already impacted Russia? Yeah, I mean, this is really pulling out a major unconventional weapon, but, you know, big weapon in the U.S. arsenal. And that is overwhelming economic sanctions of the kind that were not imposed by the way, after the 2014 Russian takeover, illegal annexation of Crimea. Uh, And this time, we've just sort of gone almost entirely guns blazing, sanctions on uh, Russian banks, on the Russian energy sector, on its ability essentially to function in the globalized international economy, uh, really cutting off and isolating Russia in a way that, that has not been done up until now. And I think there is a a sense that those are biting, certainly in a way that sanctions haven't before. The other thing is that you often hear in the public commentary this sort of question as if, you know, the U.S. is just going to sort of turn off the sanctions in some negotiated deal with with Putin that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I think I would be very wary of taking all that discussion about off ramps and, you know, sanctions being lifted and stuff. I don't see that happening. I think the smartest Russia observers that, you know, I speak with here in Washington believe that as long as Vladimir Putin is the leader of Russia, it's very, very unlikely that those sanctions are going to be lifted. And how much do you think this strategy has to do with the fact that Biden is in charge now? He was obviously vice president in 2014 uh, when we saw the annexation of Crimea. Do you think that his leadership is a big reason why we have seen this strategy pursued? I actually do. Uh, I do. I think that uh, one of the portfolios a U.S. vice president, certainly both Biden and Dick Cheney before him, had was the sort of care and tending of Uh, the anxious periphery uh, around Russia, other countries in the former Soviet Union who felt very nervous uh, about Russian aggression, as we now see for very understandable reasons, Georgia, Ukraine, the Baltics, you know, Biden spent a lot of time as vice president dealing with those countries, traveling there. And so I do think this is a correction in that sense that, that is very much informed by Biden's experience. I also think, of course, he came into office in the aftermath of Donald Trump's extraordinary four-year attack on America's allies and its, you know, democratic partners in NATO and in the European Union. And that was really a foundation of Biden's approach to foreign policy. And we've seen that a huge emphasis on rebuilding allied solidarity and and unity. And that's really been a, a hallmark of what they've been after in this. 
And looking at the international response, this week the EU agreed to a partial ban on Russian oil. Hungary, who was against the ban, will still have access, of course. And that step was taken with the goal of cutting off funding to the Kremlin's war machine. This partial ban took over a month to organize, which the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, really criticized. So, Susan, how do you feel the EU has done in helping Ukraine? You know, the EU obviously is bound by uh, its membership and consensus, but you've seen from Hungary, but not just Hungary, you know, you look at Germany, you look at other countries, and the extraordinary fact remains that European gas purchases are funding a lot of Putin's war. And there have been warnings for years about this. And I think a real sense of complacency, a lack of urgency, and an unwillingness to do what it it took in advance to foreclose this from happening. And so uh, it's not a surprise, I guess, that it's taken time and been frustrating and not yet resulted in you know, the full cutting off of Russian energy supplies as as a part of the European energy mix. But this is Putin's largest remaining leverage. And right after the start of the invasion, we really saw a coming together of allies that may have surprised and disappointed Vladimir Putin. Do you think the U.S. and the EU are still aligned now in the response to Russia more than three months after the start of the invasion? You know, I I do, actually. I think that the overall approach of Western allies of Europe and the United States has been remarkably united, given the different interests and and, uh, priorities and geography of all of these countries. But, and this is a big but, you know, I, I asked not that long ago a very senior U.S. official, well, what was his biggest concern going forward in the war? And he said, you know, complacency. And an averting of the gaze and a turning away, a, a, you know, getting used to this is the new normal. And I think that is the real danger, is that we move away from a crisis footing, that this settles into a longer war of attrition. The longer it goes on, the more possibility to unravel uh, that sense of crisis and shared purpose that shaped the beginning of the war. outside the U.S. and the EU, what kind of global support are we seeing for Ukraine right now? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. It, it, it has been, when we talk about unity, it really has been more the unity of the United States and its NATO allies and, and Western partners. And it is really, it is also notable that there's a sort of modern era equivalent of the non-aligned movement that we have seen, uh, the sort of rising powers, middle powers, countries such as India, for example. India, of course, has a decades-old military-to-military relationship uh, and defense procurement relationship with Russia, which it's been wary of cutting off entirely, although they did just cancel a significant contract. But, you know, again, they have uh, shown that they're kind of waiting to see what happens. And so that just, to me, underscores the stakes 
involved in this conflict. It's not just Ukraine and Russia, but it's really a lot of the rest of the world is waiting to see what what is the new superpower arrangement in the world. Can U.S. leadership succeed uh, uh, in organizing resistance to uh, rising autocracies such as Russia and China? There's a lot on on the line here. So going forward, what else do you think the Biden administration can do for Ukraine? In an essay published in The New York Times earlier this week, Biden wrote that this war, quote, will only definitively end through diplomacy. Do you think that's a fair assessment here? Well, I think it's it's a, a sort of a statement in a way of uh, what's viewed as historical conventional wisdom here in Washington, which is to say that that's how wars end. But it's a little bit misleading because I think if you speak with you know, senior administration officials, what you get is uh, a more realistic sense that this isn't going to be happening anytime soon, given Russia's conduct of the war and uh, given the unreasonableness of Russia's demands, which are still framed, again, in very existential terms that Ukraine is a non-state composed of non-people. And so I don't see any realistic prospects in the short or even medium term for a negotiated end to this conflict. And in that same essay published in The Times, Biden also wrote, quote, if Russia does not pay a heavy price for its actions, it will send a message to other would-be aggressors that they too can seize territory and subjugate other countries. Who do you think he has in mind when he says that? So uh, China, China, China is the answer. Remember that Joe Biden just came back last week from his first Asia trip of his presidency. China and its goals with regard to Taiwan are top of mind. Our policy toward Taiwan has not, Taiwan has not changed at all. We remain committed to supporting the peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits and ensuring that there is no unilateral change to that status quo. That is very clearly a part of all of their messaging when it comes to Ukraine and to Russia, which is that, uh, you know, the Chinese ought to look really carefully at what a strategic disaster uh, this has been for Russia and and take, hope hopefully, the appropriate lesson that trying to rearrange international boundaries by force is is not a good idea in this day and age. So looking at Biden's major foreign policy decisions so far, it seems like he will be judged on his response to the troop withdrawal in Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, and more recently, his comments regarding Taiwan. From what you can tell so far, what is Biden's foreign policy strategy? Do you think that there is some kind of central philosophy that is driving Biden's foreign policy up to this point? You know, even as a candidate, Biden was very clear in framing his approach to the world as this being a moment of of really existential peril, that we're seeing a, a renewed moment of great power competition, but more than that, a conflict of systems and values between democracies and rising autocratic powers, increasingly, by the way, aligned with each other, Russia and China. And in that sense, he's been very, very consistent. I think Afghanistan was a particular blow, I think, to Biden's claim to restoring a kind of competent presidential leadership to American foreign policy. So I do think it was a kind of a significant political event for the president, but it's not necessarily a political driver of action in the United States, which you know, like many countries, is very inwardly focused right now. There's enormous, you know, 
worst inflation in four decades. There's fears that we'll, we'll enter a recession later this year. There's enormous political uh, dysfunction and uh, partisanship. So, you know, it's an inward looking moment right now. And Susan, we always ask a what else question on our podcast. So the last two weeks of American news have been dominated by two mass shootings carried out by 18-year-olds who were able to buy assault rifles and kill dozens of people, including young children in Texas. This week, we saw that the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, proposed a freeze on handgun ownership in his country in response to what happened in the U.S., It's striking to me that a country that isn't the U.S. is doing more than the American government in terms of gun safety right now. So what do you make of this development? Yeah, I mean, you just laid it out. It's 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 devastating. It's brutal. It speaks so poorly to the United States as a as a political system uh, that we have not only been willing uh, to tolerate the repeated mass slaughter of children inside this country. But, you know, look at the numbers after the the Sandy Hook killing uh, in Newtown, Connecticut. The numbers of guns and gun ownership in the country went up. People ran out and bought guns, apparently in response to the fear that there would be new uh, gun restrictions enacted, which there were not. And it's, it's an incredible, incredible failure of our system. You know, I have a son who's graduating from high school and his entire growing up has been punctuated by these horrible events. In American schools now, you have children who are from a very young age, you know, terrified with these drills and hiding under the desk and taught what to do in a lockdown situation. And, you know, there's a kind of a fatalism about this as if we can't do anything when, of course, you can do something. And we just have chosen as a society not to do something. Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all from us this week. Keep an eye out for Susan's new book coming out in September. It's called The Divider, and it will be a sweeping, in-depth analysis of the Trump presidency. Jonathan Friedland will be back with you next week. For anyone wanting to learn all about the latest from Westminster, make sure to listen to Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, as my colleague Gabby Hinsliff looks at the future of the Conservative Party, given that the government seems to be relying heavily on nostalgia for its policymaking, rather than addressing the needs of the country right now. So do take time to listen to that. But for now, it's goodbye. The producers are Danielle Stevens and Tony Onuchuku. The executive producer is Isabel Hugal, and I'm Joni Grieve. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.